have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner Today's Spirit in Action interview is with Marty Webb. Marty has spent the last six months in Sri Lanka with his wife Rita, where she's been serving the Nonviolent Peace Force since 2003. Marty, raised Catholic, was refused CO status during the Vietnam War and ended up convicted for refusing induction. Marty's experience in confronting the draft and the alternate service he ended up performing became a turning point in his life. He eventually ended up in Eau Claire, got first an undergraduate degree in philosophy, then an M.A. in religion and theology. Marty has attended the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Eau Claire since about 1990 and has taught ethics courses at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Thanks, Marty, for joining me for Spirit in Action. How are you doing today with this wonderful winter weather after your time over in Sri Lanka? Unlike most of the people in town, I'm loving this winter weather, I think, because for the last seven months in Sri Lanka, I've had day after day of the dampest, most humid August that I can ever remember spending. Sri Lanka, except in the highlands, is always August. So this, for me, is a very refreshing change. I loved winter even before I left, more than most of my friends, and so the snow and the cold is fine. And uh, for a six-week hiatus, I will enjoy it immensely. I can relate. My time in Equatorial Africa when I was part of the Peace Corps was an experience of sweating for two years. 
You're going right back to Sri Lanka after this six-week hiatus, and do you anticipate staying there for the foreseeable future, or is there limited time? Well, I'm in Sri Lanka because my wife is in Sri Lanka, and she's working with, as you know, a group called the Nonviolent Peace Force. Uh, it's difficult to say how long we'll be there. She has just had her visa extended, as well as her colleagues' visas have been extended through March of 2007. But the commitment that she originally made for two years, and which has now stretched beyond that, could end at any time. You know, the job could become so frustrating or another opportunity could come up in this kind of work that could take us to a different part of the world. Or the situation in Sri Lanka could uh, deteriorate to the point where even an NGO like Nonviolent Peace Force, which theoretically would be the last one to leave, might also have to leave the country or might be asked to leave the country. So it's a tenuous situation in that regard. It's hard to say when we'd be back. If all goes well, we'd uh, probably be back toward the end of next summer for another visit. But the commitment there right now is somewhat open-ended. What is Rita doing there, and what is your role in Sri Lanka? Well, Rita's part of this inaugural project by this international group called Nonviolent Peace Force. Their mission is somewhat complex, but I guess the easiest way to describe it would be to say that nonviolent peace force goes into situations, or at least went into a situation in Sri Lanka, of 20 years of civil war, which has now been broken ever so slightly by a ceasefire, which has lasted for tenuously uh, for two or three years and not always successfully. The supposition is that in most violent, war-torn situations, the majority of people would want peace if they could get it, and that there are always peacemakers in these countries who are striving at great risk to themselves to establish peaceful solutions to problems rather than violent solutions, but that these local peacemakers are intimidated and sometimes killed by those who have a vested interest in violent solutions. What Nonviolent Peace Force operates on is the supposition that if local peacemakers are accompanied by, assisted by, supported by internationals who share the same values, that the local peacemakers will have a better chance to prevail in terms of situations on the ground in places like Sri Lanka. So whereas local peacemakers might not be able to find their voice in the absence of international support, nonviolent peace force tries to provide that international support to say to local peacemakers, you are important, you have the solutions to problems, but you're not able perhaps to implement them as well as you might because of intimidation, threats of violence. The mere presence of supportive international people is frequently enough to provide a safety net for you. First they came for the communists Then they came for the Jews But I wasn't a communist And I wasn't a Jew So I didn't stand up And I didn't ask why By the time they came 
was nobody left to even try. Then they came for the pacifists, and they came for the priests. But I wasn't pacifist, and I wasn't a priest. So I didn't stand up, and I didn't ask why. By the time they came for me, there was nobody left to even try. Then they came for the unionists. They came for the gays, but I wasn't a unionist, and I wasn't gay, so I didn't stand up. So I didn't stand up, and I didn't ask why. And I didn't ask why. By the time they came for me. By the time they came for me, there was nobody left to even try. Now they come for the Muslims. Come for the refugees. Though I am not a Muslim, and I'm not a refugee. Now I will stand up. Now I will stand up, and I will ask why. And I will ask why. And when someday they come for me. And when someday they come for me, I hope there's someone standing by my side. Yes, we will stand up. Yes, we will stand up. Oh, yes, we will ask why. Yes, we will ask why. And when someday they come. And when someday they come for you. There'll be lots of people standing by your side. A world of people standing side by side. Rita and her teammates work with local peacemakers in the eastern district of Sri Lanka, trying to see that the ceasefire evolves into something like a permanent solution to the problems in Sri Lanka. And next to that very important work that she does, the things that I've done since my arrival in June or July have been more or less trivial. But we agreed when she went in 2003, she made a two-year commitment to this, and the idea was I would stay home in Eau Claire. And when I went to visit her last year, just about this time, right at the time of tsunami, it became obvious to me that's the first time I was seeing Sri Lanka that she loved the work, and with her two-year commitment coming to an end, some of the most important work was still ahead. 
uh, she wouldn't have ever asked, but I suggested that perhaps if I moved there, she could continue the work for a longer period and see it to a successful conclusion. And over the course of that three-week visit last January, we decided that that's exactly what would happen. So what I'm doing is I'm supporting her. She and I rent a house in the town where she works, and we are living a life as comfortable as we possibly could, given the circumstances. And I think that has enabled her to continue doing her work with Nonviolent Peace Force. Nonviolent Peace Force is an organization, like many organizations, does not hire spouses, does not hire married couples as teams. So I have been involved in a few other projects to date, and when I go back, we'll see about hooking up with some more. There are always things to do in countries like this. After tsunami, a number of school children in the area raised a good deal of money to help with some restoration projects. And I took that money over there from specifically school children from Altoona and Fall Creek. And we've worked with a group of parents who are building a library addition onto a school in an area that was badly damaged by tsunami. I've been working on that project. I spent six weeks as an election monitor with a group called the People's Alliance for Free and Fair Elections because the Sri Lankans had a presidential election this past fall. and uh, So I was one of the international election monitors for six weeks prior to the election. And I've worked with some local groups of people in Valachenei, different minor projects where I felt I could help based on years I spent doing administrative-type things here in the U.S., I think you probably shouldn't discount your role. You know the great saying uh, that behind every great woman there's a man who's supporting her. It's wonderful that you comfortably fill fill that role. What is it like in Sri Lanka now? I mean, obviously you don't care for the climate so far. What are the people like? What's your experience? Do you like being there? Well, the people are marvelous. The people, I think, are marvelous almost everywhere you go. Everybody is uh, thrilled to see that there are people in the international community who care about Sri Lanka, who even know about Sri Lanka. So there's that situation. Also, because of the 20 years history of violence, there is a certain degree of fear, or maybe I should say apprehension, on the part of people who are always struggling with the idea of how they can best live their lives and keep their children safe and things that we take for granted in our country to the extent that they know uh, and see that we're there to assist in that process however we can. We're greeted and made to feel very much at home. It's a very different country than the U.S. It's got a uh, an interesting religious mix, which plays, unfortunately, into some of the history of violence that they've experienced. We live in a community that is half Tamil Hindu and half Muslim. Uh, and the split between the two sides of town is stark. We live about 200 meters from Main Street in our house in what happens to be the Muslim section of town. And it's all Muslims. Uh, and uh, across the Main Street, you will find the Tamils. And they come together during the day to shop in the various market stalls on Main Street. But at the end of the day, when the sun goes down at 6.30, which it does every day... Another one of the things I miss about not being in Wisconsin is the change of seasons. When the sun goes down, uh, everybody goes back to their sides, and there's kind of a level of, of mistrust there. Also, the political situation has, has hardened, perhaps would be the best way to say it, in the last several months. 
the Tamil Tigers, which has been the main rebel group fighting for independence for the Tamil people in Sri Lanka for the last 20 or so years, uh, has suffered a group splitting away from them, challenging their authority, which has led to some internecine struggles between those two groups, uh, and that's been a problem. A complicating factor in Valachennai, the town that we live in, is that in addition to the Tamils fighting each other now, at least on some level, the Muslims have been an excluded group from the political arena in Sri Lanka. There is a majority population of Sinhalese speakers who are largely Buddhist by religion, and they live primarily in the southern part of the country, and because they're the majority, they control the power in this democracy at this point. Tamils felt excluded. Muslims have also, as a minority, felt excluded. And so there are groups of Muslims that are now clamoring for a seat at the table while everybody sits down to discuss what kind of a solution will be worked out to this problem. It seems to me extremely unlikely that an island which is half the size of Wisconsin is going to be able to support two countries. One might argue it's not even large enough to support one country. So the Tamil Tigers will ultimately be unsuccessful in gaining a homeland, a country of their own, on a portion of this island. Some solution is going to have to be worked out, however, which devolves power from the capital so that local people have more power and control over their lives and so that Tamil people who form the majority in the north and a large subset of the east will be able to have some control over their own lives, speak their own language in the local courts or in the local schools or those kinds of concerns. Muslims are going to want that kind of power as well, local power, whereas for most of the past 20 years, the Tamils have said to the Muslims, trust us when we get our own homeland, you'll be well taken care of. Now large groups of Muslims are saying that's no longer satisfactory and we want peace. We feel threatened by the ongoing, and they are threatened by the ongoing hostilities, even at the low level they're at now, and they want a, a voice as the solution is worked out. There was a presidential election, which I referred to when I was talking about some of the things I've worked on. Uh, the newly elected president is considered perhaps something of a hardliner in terms of negotiating with the Tamil Tigers, and this may also serve as an obstacle. The Tigers have responded officially that uh, they're willing to wait and see in terms of how the new president negotiates, but those of us who live in the East, and especially those who live in the North, some of whom are Rita's colleagues, have noticed that the level of violence seems to have increased somewhat over the last several months. Are the Tamils of a particular religious group, are they Hindus primarily, and Muslims aren't part of that group? The Tamils are Hindus, as you've indicated. Uh, the Muslims are not, obviously, Hindus. They're Tamil speakers if they live in the East. They're Sinhala speakers if they live in the South. The difference between the Muslims and the Tamils and the Sinhalese is a religious difference rather than a language difference. All of these people, the Muslims, the Tamils, the Sinhalese, have been on this island for an amazingly long time. So when the Sinhalese majority talks about the Tamils going back to India or the Muslims going back to, I don't know, Malaysia or Indonesia, wherever they might have come from, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 
they're talking about a situation which uh, is confusing to Tamils and Muslims because they consider that Sri Lanka is their home as well. All these people lived together as part of the British Empire when it was Ceylon, and when Ceylon became an independent state for the first several years, they were looked at as a success story because these people lived together then as well too. But Sinhalese nationalists, nationalist leaders back in the 70s made some political blunders, or maybe they were politically successful moves in that they got elected, but the cost of the country wound up being terrible. Sinhalese and Tamil had always been seen as uh, co-languages in the country, for instance, and the Sinhalese majority at some point said, Sinhala only. If you're speaking Tamil, you're not speaking the official language of the country, and you need to either learn Sinhala or go back someplace else where they speak Tamil. Those kinds of decisions gradually made the significant minority of Tamil speakers and the significant minority of Muslims also, to a certain extent, feel like the Buddhist majority in the country, the Sinhala-speaking Buddhist majority, was looking for a situation where the country would be unanimously Sinhala-speaking and Buddhist, rather than just majority Sinhalese and Buddhist. Even the name of the country, Sri Lanka, those are Sinhalese words. That reflects, for some people, the idea that perhaps minorities are not going to be tolerated. Marty, I want to start tracing some of what got you, and maybe Rita, to where you are in your life. So let's start out with a child. I believe you were raised Irish Catholic. Were you an altar boy and all that? Did you go to Catholic schools? Did all that. Went to those schools. I was the oldest of eight children growing up in a suburb of Chicago back uh, in the uh, 50s. That golden, gauzy era when all of us lived the perfect childhoods going to our parochial schools. While I was growing up in Chicago, my wife-to-be was growing up in a very similar kind of a family in a suburb of St. Louis, going to the same kinds of schools. So for both Rita and myself, our background is, to the extent that we have a religious background, it's uh, certainly we were both raised Catholics and grew up in Catholic schools. Somewhere along the way, I think you became disenchanted with your Catholicism. You started having doubts. Can you name any particular steps that led you to that doubt? I don't know if I can name particular steps. I I think uh, of all of us, not all of us, I think a large number of people, when they reach their teens or late teens or early 20s, begin to experience or, or question some of the received wisdom that was part of their childhood. And I don't think my experience was much different than that, rather than there being a cathartic moment. Some Catholics at that time, for instance, point to Vatican II, where they say, you know, when the Latin disappeared from the Mass, the mystery went out of the sacraments, and it was the mystery that they enjoyed. I didn't have that feeling. I certainly did master those Latin responses to the Mass, and I can still rattle some of those off, frighteningly enough, taking up brain storage space all these years later. But I think the first great disappointment I had with Catholicism as an institution came during the Vietnam War, and especially in the mid to late 60s when I was faced with a decision about what I would do personally if confronted with having to participate in the Vietnam War it became painfully apparent to me that Catholicism as an institution, far from being a model of, let's say, positions that we might associate with Jesus of Nazareth, for instance, was institutionally a supporter of the war. In fact, the South Vietnamese leaders were Roman Catholics, and many Catholic leaders supported the American war in Vietnam, certainly in the early days. 
when I presented myself at my local draft board to request conscientious objector status after dropping out of college and losing my student deferment, the people in the draft board told me that Catholics would have a very hard time being conscientious objectors because Catholics had a long, glorious history of warlike support for their country. I mean, that was the first time I had to look at my religious background. It, was not, it wasn't something that I had. I mean, I didn't grow up dreaming of being a priest or anything like that. But, you know, it was always something I was comfortable in. All of my friends went to the same schools I did. We were all part of that Irish-Catholic mix, whether we were Irish or not. The Vietnam experience forced me to uh, look at that and say, are there things that I was taught in my upbringing in schools, like love one another and that sort of thing, that contrasted mightily with the institutional position that said we ought to expend much violent energy uh, making sure that some Catholics get to rule South Vietnam and that I would have to contribute my own life directly to that at some point as well. I mean, it was comfortable enough to look the other way when I didn't wasn't faced with that question, but once I was faced with the question, I had to deal with that. And at that point, Catholicism specifically, Christianity maybe in general, became something of a disappointment to me. Could you talk a little bit about the course of your CO application? Well, the course of my CO application was short and bittersweet. I applied for conscientious objector status, you know, filled out the appropriate paperwork, met with my draft board personally for the hearing, got the very strong sense from that meeting that my request was going to be looked upon unfavorably, as it was. This would have been, I was in my early 20s now. I was not, at that point, I wouldn't call myself a staunch Catholic. I wouldn't attend church quite irregularly. And I remember one of the members of the draft board coming out as I was leaving the room saying something to me like, regardless of how this turns out, son, I certainly hope you get back to church on a regular basis. I could sense from comments like that that I had not in any way been adequately prepared to explain or defend my conscientious objector status. I wasn't part of any organized group that had a ready-made set of answers. I suppose if I was perhaps a Quaker, certainly a Mennonite, there would have been a long tradition behind me, and that would have been understandable, but the only religious background I had to fall back on was Catholicism, which was uh, failing me here in this stand. So they turned me down, classified me 1A, which meant that I was going to be probably conscripted fairly soon. I attempted at that point to enroll or to apply to the Peace Corps and VISTA and other groups that brought with them a deferment and where I could feel like I was contributing usefully because the idea of government service or community service is not one that I, I mean, that wasn't the part of military service that appalled me. It was what we were going to be asked to do and what I was going to be asked to do with regard to military service. Peace Corps and VISTA people all told me that given my 1A status, they could not accept me at that point. Uh, so I I puttered around with jobs, waited for the uh, uh, inevitable announcement to come, and it did. I had been doing this all on my own. At that time, I consulted some draft council people who said, my goodness, if you're going to do this, let me, let's me let see if we can get you some legal representation. This was not an unusual situation by the time this was happening, 69, 70. Much public opinion was turning against the war at this point. So I think uh, probably it was late 68 when I was first inducted and then scheduled for induction. I, I met with an attorney who was recommended to me, volunteered his services through the American Friends Service Committee, which was very active then with the draft counseling. Still are. Presented myself for induction, was sent home by the people who said that I should think this over before I ruined my life. And 
was subsequently scheduled for induction again about eight or ten months later. And at that time, when I uh, was at the draft uh, center, I was pulled from the group. They had spotted something in my behavior that they felt was going to be disruptive. They were used to looking for these things by now, arrested by the FBI, who came down to the induction center and took me off and loaned me the Chicago police overnight so that I could be uh, presented to a magistrate the next day and was released on bond fairly quickly after that. The magistrate saying, in, uh, I remember U.S. counsel, the U.S. Uh, attorney's office saying there should be a very high bond, and the magistrate said if this young man was going to leave, he would have left already. I think it's a fairly strong possibility that he'll show up in court. Subsequently, uh, I received the scariest paper I ever received in my life in the mail, a document which said the people of the United States of America versus Martin C. Webb. And I thought to myself, boy, I've really done it now. This doesn't seem fair. But if I thought to myself, if I survive this, uh, nothing else will ever be quite so scary again. I was tried in federal district court in Chicago, convicted of refusing induction by a jury that did not seem very sympathetic at all to what my plight was. The judge in the case at that point had typically sentenced draft refusers to three years in prison, which meant minimum security federal prison, not hard time by any means, but a waste of time, usually reduced to about two years and four months or something for good behavior if you could behave well which would have been comparable to military service. I would certainly be able to look at myself in the face every morning and say I wasn't being asked to do things that I couldn't do. There was about a 30-day period after conviction before sentencing. I was told to meet with the probation office for a pre-sentence investigation. Uh, the probation officer said I should try to arrange some kind of setting for alternate service if the judge was so disposed in this case. I brushed that off. I said this judge has never given alternate service, has never given probation in a draft case. Probation officer said, well, you never know. And I wound up spending the 30 days mostly saying goodbye to friends. And you know, they had a couple of small concerts to raise some money for the attorney that had been defending me. And I did, toward the end of the 30 days, meet briefly with a priest who was working in a parish on the west side of Chicago. He, this was a priest who had been one of my teachers in high school, a Jesuit, and uh, told him the situation, said there really wasn't you know, any chance that I'd be there. Well, he said, I'll write a letter, and you know, you never know how these things work out. I'll write a letter to the judge, and maybe uh, we can get you down here. And I said, great, Father, thanks a lot. See you in a couple of years. Showed up on the morning of sentencing, fully expecting to be taken into custody to begin serving a sentence. And the judge started out by railing at my counsel, my attorney, and me. We were talking in general about how he thought the young people just weren't willing to fight for their country anymore, and he didn't understand that. This particular judge had fought in the Pacific in World War II as an enlisted man, so he had a long history of not shirking his responsibilities himself. As he was railing on to my attorney, I thought, you know, the maximum sentence I could get is five years, and it sounds like he's going to, for some reason, either my attorney upset him or whatever, I think he's going to, I'm going to get more than the three years. Well, I was worried about that. He pulled some papers out of his robes, 
And his whole tone changed. He said, I don't understand what you people are doing, but I have a letter here from a nice priest uh, over on the west side. Now, of course, I'm not Catholic. I'm Jewish. But I grew up in this neighborhood, and those priests do some good work. And I think what I'm going to do is give you a chance to do something good with your life. And quite frankly, after that, I don't remember what he said. I could remember that there were people in the courtroom behind me, and I could hear them all of a sudden, and there was a murmur, like they were saying, oh, my God, he's going to get probation. They're going to get, you know. Uh, and in fact, the judge did sentence me to five years probation on the condition that I would serve two years uh, alternate service living and working in this parish on the west side, his old neighborhood. Uh, and as it turned out, for Judge Maravitz, Abraham Lincoln Maravitz, my case was the case that was the turning point for him. Prior to that, he had given three years in all draft cases. Subsequent to that, he gave five years probation in all draft cases on the condition that people would do alternate service. And each of the judges in the district, you know, the judges were making those kinds of decisions at that point. It was just a fortuitous timing, perhaps. My sentence hearing was in February of 71. So... You know, the time was such that by that time a lot of people were changing their minds about what was going on in Vietnam, and the tide really had turned. And when people like Judge Maravitz were changing their minds, one could say that the times really were changing. So I went to my alternate service site at Holy Family Parish on the west side and uh, began doing what the judge suggested would be two years' worth of work and what wound up being seven years' worth of work at Holy Family. And three or four months after I arrived at Holy Family, a young woman arrived for a summer internship job in the office, and that woman became my wife a few years later. So so it was an interesting twist to the story. But, and, of course, you know, stories like that were frequent as young men faced this issue in the 19, late 60s, early 70s about what to do when confronted with with a request to uh, be part of a violent solution. I certainly wouldn't have faced this, the question forthrightly if I hadn't been faced with it myself. I could certainly, I wasn't raised in a family that talked about war or nonviolence or peace or anything like that. And uh, in fact, my parents, while lovingly supporting my stand, uh, certainly didn't understand it and were sure that I was ruining my life by having a conviction and, and having to go to jail and whatever, picturing all the bad things that could happen to you in jail. I had done more research than they, and I knew that a minimum security federal prison was not going to be, uh, especially back in those days, before drug offenses were the big deal. Minimum security federal penitentiaries were just, it was just going to be a two-year waste of time, but a small price to pay.
does he ask himself why do we kill people who are killing people to show that killing people is wrong what a foolish notion that war is called devotion when the greatest warriors are the ones that stand for peace if war is growing longer the problems stay the same poor ones get thrown in prison while warden what's his name is feeling justified but when will he be tried for never Why do we kill people who are killing people to show that killing people is wrong? What a foolish notion War is called devotion When the greatest warriors are the ones They think they're saving a friend They get drawn in by patriotic lies Right before our eyes They leave our home And then they find it once they're all alone They're asking the age-old question Why? I was wondering, Marty, do you still consider yourself a conscience subjector? I know somewhere you went from maybe considering yourself Catholic. I think you're a member of the Unitarian Universalist congregation here in town. How did you get there? What has happened to your beliefs in between? Well, as far as uh, the Unitarians, my wife and I were part of a group in Wausau called Beyond War. This was a group back 15, 20 years ago now. Well, more than that, I guess. After we moved from Chicago and were in Wausau, my wife was teaching and I was working in healthcare administration and we felt like we wanted to do something to continue to talk about those issues that had been important to us. And so we were doing presentations for the group Beyond War and the place in Wausau that provided us with the space to do that was the Unitarian, actually in, in Wausau it was the Universalist Unitarian Church. And that was the first time I had really come in contact with Unitarians and Universalists. I'm sure I must have known they were out there, but I certainly wasn't at the same time. I certainly wasn't a religious seeker. I wasn't looking for any group of church people. When we moved to Eau Claire in Wausau, I had family and friends already, but when we came to Eau Claire, we really didn't know much of anybody. And shortly after, well, in fact, when I first came to town, I was working at the family medicine clinic over on Farwell, and the Unitarian Fellowship was right down the street there. And one of those early days, I, you know, I had put together the fact that, oh, yeah, the Unitarians, the Universalists, those are the people that, you know, gave us space when we were back in Wausau talking about Beyond War. 
And I glanced up every day and saw their, they had a, a nuclear free zone or something sign in one of their windows. And I thought, you know, uh, maybe there would be people there that Rita and I could meet and uh, who would kind of think along the same lines that we were thinking about many things. Worldviews might be similar. And, uh, and so we did show up there. 88, 89, right after we first came to town, and uh, and we did find it a very congenial group. Although, again, to talk about Unitarians and Universalists and religion and theology is going to take us down. I mean, that's a that's a whole different discussion. I, after getting a degree in philosophy, wound up earning a master's degree in theology and religion from a seminary in the Twin Cities, United Theological Seminary, and I told people at the Unitarian Fellowship, and I told people at the seminary as well, that there was a greater diversity of opinion any Sunday morning in the pews at the Unitarian Fellowship than there was in the whole seminary that I attended with all the students there. I mean, it's just such a diverse group, one of the things that makes it interesting, I think, for me. And so Rita and I, over the years, consider ourselves part of that group, and many of our friends here in town are people that we met there. I hesitate to call, I, I mean, I wouldn't point to any, in fact, as a Unitarian, you wouldn't point to any dogma or any point of theological tenet that you would say that they hold. There's no creed that you have to subscribe to, and it was that openness that appealed to us about the Unitarians. Marty, what led you to go to the seminary to get your master's? What I've heard you say before, just talking with you, is that uh, religion really doesn't fit from you much. You're not a religious seeker, yet something led you to go to the seminary. What drew you there? I went to university uh, as a traditional age student in the middle 60s and hated it. I was studying business administration or something else appalling like that. Uh, I don't mean that business administering businesses is appalling, because that's what I did most of my life uh, for a living, and I found it uh, in many cases rewarding, but the the study of business administration uh, wasn't an, anything that I was interested in when I was an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old, and so I dropped out of college, which led to the draft problems that we've already talked about. Went back to college during the time that I was at Holy Family Parish. At one point, they asked me if I would help in the classrooms there, and I actually wound up teaching uh, junior high school math for two years for them, maybe three years. This was a small parish on the west side in the middle of the ghetto, and they couldn't attract any teachers that uh, were qualified, so <laughs> they figured I could do it without a college degree or anything else, and there was nothing keeping me from doing it, so I began doing it, and I very much enjoyed the classroom experience, and I thought, well, maybe I should get a degree in elementary education, which I then began pursuing uh, while I was teaching. I was pursuing a degree in elementary education, and I loved the teaching, and I hated the classes, and so I didn't get a degree that time either. Several years later, when I was here in Eau Claire, I felt like, well, you know, I've never gotten that college degree. I've always thought, well, I wonder if I could should get that. I know I can't get a, can't stand taking courses in business administration or elementary education. I've ruled those two out, but I've got all those credits. And so I showed up over here at UW Eau Claire with a pile of credits and uh, the instructions that I was sure I couldn't major in business administration or elementary education. Was there something else that the academic advisor could suggest? You know, I said, I just, I just want the degree, just the credential. It might open some doors for me, even at this point in my life. 
Uh, she suggested looking at my credits that maybe I should major in psychology. I already had some psychology credits. Maybe I had a couple of anthropology credits. Maybe I would minor in anthropology. So I said, well, okay, great. Let's try it one more time. I'll do some night courses here and work it around my work schedule. So I began classes, majoring in psychology, minoring in anthropology. Uh, in the first semester that I was taking courses there, I realized that this wasn't going to be for me either. Uh, I was somewhat depressed by that. I was wandering around Hibbert Hall during the break time. Somehow wound up on the sixth floor of the building where the philosophy department was located. And I said to myself, and I looked at some of the boards and some of the, I thought to myself, philosophy, maybe, you know, boy, maybe I would enjoy philosophy. Met with an advisor up there the next day or that week or something and shortly changed my major to philosophy and I loved it. I loved the courses. I loved the teachers in the department. Got my degree eventually, uh, majoring in philosophy and by that time minoring in history. Uh, because at that point I'd said, hey, I'm just going to take courses I enjoy. I'm, I'm not doing this for work. I'm doing this because these are the questions that I enjoy exploring. Having gotten the degree in philosophy, I was, um, at that point, I felt like my appetite was just whetted. I was interested in exploring those questions further. I had heard about the United Theological Seminary in the Twin Cities, which catered to adult students and explored those philosophical questions uh, from a different angle. Uh, and they were non-denominational, more or less, but liberal religion. I wasn't going someplace that was stringently training ministers, and I wasn't training for the ministry. I was just, I was just continuing to explore the questions that I had, uh, I had been looking at and reading about when I was a philosophy major, and wound up with a master's of art in uh, religion and theology from UTS, and very much enjoyed uh, many of the courses that I took there as well, and was able to feel like I was in some orderly way, exploring the questions that had had been most interesting to me and I think are most interesting to a lot of people for most of their lives. It was an opportunity, something I could do. I mean, for me, it was uh, I was working the entire time, so I was working part-time at the university and taking part-time classes at United, commuting back and forth from Minneapolis, so I didn't, took a while to get the degree, and by the time I eventually earned it, I was pretty well worn out and I decided I wasn't going to pursue any more degrees in my life. That's what really took me on that path was that I felt like the, you know, at UW-Eau Claire we have a Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies, and one might think that there's a fairly clear line between those two, and I'm, I've never been quite able to discern exactly what that clear line might be. I mean, they both ask questions of a nature that tries to explore what essential problems are we faced with, what essential challenges do we have, and uh, do we face in life. And, uh, and those are the things that philosophy and, I think, religious studies explores too, in both cases. So that's how I got my master's degree in religion and theology. It wasn't so much that I was... I mean, I certainly am interested in how people have tried to answer that question before, what they've put forth as suggestions. Christianity is a suggestion of how we might live our lives based on the role model, more or less, of Jesus and Nazareth. I mean, if you even if you take out the God part, you know, the Son of God part, Jesus of Nazareth is an amazing role model for people to use. Students would sometimes ask me, outside of class, well, so what religious tradition are you part of? And I would say, well... I was raised as a Christian, but uh, these days I would call myself perhaps a Jesuit. And they would say Jesuit, and I say yes, Jesuit was a better word, but it's taken, so I would call myself a Jesuit, that is to say. I would say a Jesuit is uh, a person who admires, or at least in my case, admires the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth as I understand them. 
it's hard filtered through 2,000 years of tradition to know exactly, but and to try to apply those teachings in my life without the accretions of the Christian church and those sorts of traditions. So perhaps if I have a religious tradition, whatever it's evolved in, perhaps it's evolved into this Jesuit outlook, although Jesus of Nazareth is certainly not the only role model that one could use, and he's certainly not the only role model that I would use for myself, but certainly since he was the one that I was was most important in my formative years, I would say that that would be a key part of what's been happening. And I think when I was trying to talk to my draft board way back in the 1960s, I was trying to tell them something about, I think I'm a conscientious objector because I think that with regard to the phrase, what would Jesus do, which is not something that anybody knew then or wore bracelets or whatever, but with regard to that kind of a question, it's clear to me that Jesus would not be fighting in the Vietnam War. In fact, Jesus would not be clearly, would not be fighting in any war. Jesus would be saying we are to turn the other cheek and to love our neighbors as ourselves and however that hard that is. So, When I first asked you about your spiritual path, you said you didn't have one, or specifically maybe you said you didn't consider yourself along the way a religious seeker. Clearly you were seeking something, but you don't like the name religion, I think, connected with it. What do you think it is? Let's see. What do I think it is? I think it's problem solving. What I'm seeking is how to live my life the best way I can, best for me. And hopefully that'll be best for the people around me as well. And I think that's ultimately what all of us seek in some level or another, is how are we to live? Religions certainly will put forth a path for you. All religions will do that. And yet all of those paths, to some extent or another, trodden by others, have led away from some of the basic truths, some of the basic directions that they started out. In this country, for instance, we tend to, or at least I have many friends who would tend to say that the best spiritual path is the one laid out by the Buddha and that Buddhism, a worthwhile spiritual journey to undertake, and that makes sense to me. And yet I've spent, my wife has spent two years, and I've spent six months in the most Buddhist country in the world, Sri Lanka, which describes itself as the country where Buddhism will be preserved. And the Buddhist majority there, knowingly or not, including a party, a political party made up of Buddhist monks, monks unlike Thich Nhat Hanh and the monks I'm familiar with, where Buddhist monks are agitating for a hard-line response to Tamil aspirations for power that uh, are taking the stance, some of the Buddhist monks there are taking the stance that Tamils should all be sent back to India and that Sri Lanka should be a country for Sinhalese-speaking, Buddhist-worshipping people only. Now, that's as far from my take on the Buddha's Eightfold Path as I could as I could imagine. It's just an example. I mean, the, the examples we're most familiar with, of course, are Christianity with its its uh, formative figure, Jesus, this man of peace. And, and my draft board is telling me that Christianity, Catholicism, oh my goodness, you're the best warriors. Somehow those paths have have gone astray. They don't work for me. And somehow from the time I was 18 year old or so on, maybe because of my experience with facing what I would do in Vietnam or maybe other, uh, it's hard to unravel where that all comes from, but you know, I've I've just tried to live on this path that I'm walking on as best I can. And, and that's the question we're faced with, how should we live? And I haven't found one of those well-worn paths that have religious names or spiritual names uh, to be 
particularly helpful. Uh, so those labels and the baggage that comes with those labels are things that I've tended to resist. Maybe part of that is, again, my own experience as a, as a young adult when people were trying to label my stand against the Vietnam War and to label me as a hippie or a draft dodger or a person that didn't love their country or... Uh, you know, I wasn't a draft dodger. I was certainly, I was, every time I was instructed to do something by the Selective Service, I did it. I was right there. I was a draft resistor, perhaps. And in fact, I was a Vietnam War resistor. And I certainly was as mainstream and as mainline as any of the Americans I knew, and including some friends of mine who were in the military. So this idea that that I could be labeled because of a stand I was taking was offensive to me. I wanted people, including the judge in my trial and anybody that I came into contact with, to look at me and say, what is, you know, this is me. This is not, I'm not part of the, in fact, I consciously, I think, tried to avoid large anti-war groups that could have been affiliated with, just so that it would be harder to label me. And I think this labeling thing, while it's inevitable, we need to do some kind of shorthand as we go through life in terms of groups of people and whatever. While that's inevitable, I think it's dangerous. And wherever possible, we ought to look at the people we come in contact with and look at their individual paths and see what we can draw from those. And that means that one of the ways that we label people, i.e. religious or spiritual or whatever, because of the baggage that goes with that is something that I've tended to try to rule out. So people say, well, you must have a spiritual background or a religion. I say, no, not particularly, which forces them to then ask other questions. Well, how did you get here? Because it looks to me like you're, and maybe they're going to wind up calling it. Maybe someone's going to look at the path I've taken or that my wife and I have taken and say, what a marvelous spiritual path you've taken. Well, if that's the description that somebody wants to use, then use that. But that's not the description I would use. I would just say, this is the path my wife and I have led because of the things that have happened during our lives, and this is where we wound up, and this is where we, or this is where we are today. Where is it going to be five years from now, ten years from now? I don't know. I don't really look for a guide in the terms of a creed or a spiritual mentor or somebody like that. I just look around me and try to listen and see what's going on and hear what's going on and then be open to the possibilities. One of the things that happens when you do that is you wind up with career ADD, so you don't have a big pension program waiting for you at the end of the rainbow because you weren't at the same place 20 or 30 years or something. It seems to me every few years I would be more or less contented with doing what I was doing, and then something I'd hear something about something else, and I'd say to myself, oh, boy, that sounds interesting. Maybe I could, and then I'd be off doing that. Or somebody would say, boy, it'd be great if you could, and I'd say, well, sure, let's try that. And... And that's been a marvelous way to live. I'm happier about my life choices than almost anybody I know. One of the big lucky parts of that is uh, I found uh, and married a woman who feels almost exactly the same way about all of this. So I may say, let's do this, and she may say, let's do that, and we follow each other around, and now she's dragged me halfway around the world. And she's far more adventurous than I am about that. She might be able to describe her path as spiritual more than I would be able to describe mine. She's been involved in different meditation practices over time, and she's a seeker in that same way. But I, I, I think, you know, especially maybe my experience at seminary as a graduate student, you have to do a lot of translating. I can use the word God, but the word God is almost meaningless for me because it's used so many different ways and in so many different settings that I mean, we have to spend so much time describing what it is. We're stuck using the language 
that we have. And the language that we have with regard to religion and spirituality, as far as I'm concerned, is badly corrupted by thousands of years of misappropriation for all kinds of wrong reasons. Think reasons I would consider wrong or less than ideal. Uh, and when uh, a religious path or a spiritual path can lead to something like war, violent solutions to problems, it probably would behoove us maybe to develop new language, but that's I'm too busy trying to figure out what to do next week and next month. And, and it's always, when people look around, there, there's always plenty to do. Marty, you're heading back in uh, several weeks here, back to Sri Lanka. How are you living? How are you supporting you and Rita? How are you supporting yourselves while you're there? And is there a way that other people can help out? Well, actually, Westerners can live quite frugally in a place like Sri Lanka, as it turns out. So we're supporting ourselves on the earnings that Rita makes from Nonviolent Peace Force. Nonviolent Peace Force doesn't pay a lot, something like $800 a month plus some expenses reimbursement, which, as it turns out, is plenty for two of us to live in Sri Lanka. Maybe it wouldn't be in the capital, I guess, if we live in the capital, but the city that we live in in a rural area, the house that we rent, small house and not one that would be adequate by Western standards, I suppose, but very adequate to our needs in Sri Lanka, rents for $25 a month, for instance. So we can live very comfortably in Sri Lanka on what Rita makes so that projects that I've worked on in Sri Lanka haven't involved pay and don't need to involve pay. There are people uh, who have asked, is there a way to help with what we're doing there, with what I'm doing there? I do have people in Sri Lanka that I'm in contact with who need some kind of financial support from time to time and that we'd like to try to help out from time to time. And that runs a wide gamut of ways of helping. But in general, uh, anybody who hears this and would be interested in helping that, my, Rita and I set up a foundation here at uh, RCU before we left called TINT, T-I-N-T. And any monies that go to TINT will be monies that I will disperse in Sri Lanka using my best judgment when we're called upon to try to help people. Those school monies, for instance, that kids raise help build this library and off the school are monies that are in the tent fund. If somebody was attracted by that and, and said, boy, I'd really love to write a check, I don't know what to do with it, they could certainly write a check to T-I-N-T Foundation, send it to RCU, and RCU would put it in our account, and I would make sure that it got taken care of, that we disperse that kind of money in Sri Lanka. Is that just the RCU central office? Is there a special address they need? I was told by the people at RCU that if a check showed up at any branch, made out the TINT Foundation, that they would look up the account and deposit it in that, that there's only one TINT Foundation. Uh, it's a not-for-profit 501c3. It's, uh, you know, any donation would be tax-deductible. And if people wanted to find out more about the situation with the Nonviolent Peace Force and their work in Sri Lanka, how can they do that? There's always a website. There's always a website. If you use your favorite search engine and type in nonviolent, all one word, Peace Force, all one word, you will find the website of the Nonviolent Peace Force. And there will be all sorts of links at Nonviolent Peace Force that will direct you to Sri Lanka Project uh, in particular and what's going on there, how to make donations to Nonviolent Peace Force. The main office in the U.S. is in Minneapolis. There's also an office in Brussels. There's nonviolent peace force groups working in various parts of the globe. They're getting ready to start their second project. The Sri Lanka project, as I mentioned, was the Alpha project. So they're getting ready to do that, and you will find several links that will answer lots of questions about nonviolent peace force. Yes, I think they can just go and find nonviolentpeaceforce.org, and just no spaces in there, and they'll find that information. 
Marty, I'm disappointed all the subjects we didn't get to talk about. Your teaching of ethics in the philosophy department at the university, for instance, your experience with health care and the downward spiral that that industry is going through. There's so much that I would love to talk to you about, and I'd love to talk to Rita the next time she's back, too. Thank you for taking the time to speak to the people of Wise Radio and to me, and thank you for sharing the way that your spirit is in action in the world. Well, I certainly appreciated the invitation and the opportunity and all the good work that people are doing down at WISE. When Rita and I are back in town, we'll make it a point to contact you and see if there aren't other discussions that we could have around those topics. Good luck on your work and Rita's work there. You've been listening to an interview with Marty Webb. You can read more about Marty and the Nonviolent Peace Force via my website, northernspiritradio.org. And you can also listen to this program and other programs at that same website. Music featured in this program includes Stand Up by Charlie King and Karen Brandau and Foolish Notion by Holly Near. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit you can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy in selflessness To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy in selflessness.